So we'll be in Acts chapter 14, if you have a Bible. And just so you know, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, also known as the ESV. I know Larry um, reads out of the NIV, and he and I go back and forth all the time and just jab each other about it, tongue-in-cheek always. And I just, you know, tell him, like, how can you read that, the non-inspired version? And, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, you got to have the extra spiritual version and... and so anyways, he comes back at me, which he's not here, so I won't tell you what he says because it's actually better than my comeback, but that's okay. Um, for all that you know, I, I won. So, um, so if you have an ESV Bible, break that out. We'll be in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And uh, here is what Luke records for us. He says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the believing Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned the minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, The Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That was a mouthful. So, Father, help us, I pray. We see the Apostle Paul afflicted and experiencing opposition in all kinds of different ways. And Lord, not only is this a good reminder to us that we ought to be attentive and aware of the potential of the opposition that is certainly to come to us, should we open our mouths and live our lives for the gospel. But it's also a testimony of your faithfulness. It's also a story 
about how good you are to us in the midst of such a broken world. So God, would you speak to us today? We know, Lord, unless the spirit is given to us to illumine our minds and to help to apply this to our lives, we will leave here unchanged. So God, would you work on us as we gather around your word? Help my words to be fruitful. Help the minds of all who have gathered to forget anything that is unhelpful, but what is lasting, I pray that you apply it. So help us, we pray, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've been looking at, the last couple of weeks at least, a lot of opposition. Paul opens his mouth, begins to preach the gospel. Boom, opposition is right there. It seems like every time Paul ventures into a new ministry opportunity, there's opposition. And if you are like myself as a homeowner, you understand kind of the frustration of that because you want to do a simple project like installing a ceiling fan. Next thing you know, you're ripping the roof out because you got a leak you didn't know about. Or you want to install some like little cabinet in the closet. Oh, that'll be so great. And it'll be so, you know, it's such a great thing for organization purposes. Next thing you know, your wall slanted, your floors are slanted, and you realize you got, you know, dry rot you didn't know about. So it went from putting in a cabinet to tearing out the entire wall. And it's so interesting that sometimes we just want to do these really good things, these basic things, and the next thing you know, we're in over our heads in this major construction project. And it's like what we see in the book of Acts is Paul goes forward and begins to actually share the gospel and and begins to minister to all these different cities. And every time he opens his mouth, boom, there's opposition. And if if I was Paul, I'd be frustrated. I can't get ahead. Every time I start doing something, there's there's opposition every time. Can it just go smoothly one time? Can it just be easy? I mean, that's the American way, isn't it? Quick and easy. (laughs) But as we see, it isn't quick nor easy for Paul. Because opposition multiplies when the gospel is proclaimed. But we need not fear. We need not uh, shy away from proclaiming the gospel both with our words and with our lives because God also strengthens us and also encourages us through the promises he's made to be with us even to the end of the age. And when you have a promise like that that is assured by the very nature and character of God, you can be confident, you can be bold that you know what, no matter what I say, no matter how I say it, God's going to use it for whichever way he pleases for as many people as he pleases. And there's, there's something reassuring about that. And we pick this up in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now I'm going to just stop there and ask the question, why are they in Iconium? And the answer is because of last week. Remember they were in a place called Antioch in Pisidian. They were preaching the gospel. And the people who are hearing the gospel, the Gentiles, are rejoicing and they're just praising God and they're just glorifying the message of the gospel. They're overwhelmed with all the joy and it's just multiplying one after another. And then all of a sudden you get to chapter 13, verse 20. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Paul and Barnabas left Antioch for Iconium because they were forced to flee. Things weren't going well. They were experiencing a great deal of opposition. 
So here they are in Iconium, and the first thing that they do is they go to the Jewish synagogue, which is something that we're going to see as a pattern that Paul and Barnabas develop throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Whenever they go to a new city, what's the first thing they do? Boom, Jewish synagogue. And that reminds us of what we talked about last week. The Jews are the first people to actually hear how God has fulfilled his promise. And so they go to the Jewish synagogue first, and look what happens. Paul begins to speak in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe. And when you read this, you might think, wow, if I could only preach like Paul and Barnabas did, then I will have great numbers of people believe. Well, that may be true, but here's a better thought. Let's actually take a step back and then look at Paul's writings and ask the question, how did Paul want to speak? And an easy way to answer that question is to look at how Paul requested prayer. For however Paul requests prayer is an answer to us on how we should pray for ourselves in our speaking of the gospel. So Ephesians 6.20, Paul prays that he would be bold in his speaking. Colossians 4.4 says that he is, is requesting prayer that he would speak with clarity. And he says in Romans 15.18 that God would provide him with words that would ultimately save sinners. And that is a great, I guess, prayer request for ourselves. Because I don't know many Christians who aren't a little bit intimidated by actually sharing the gospel with people. So therefore, let's pray. Let's pray. God will supply it. What should we pray for? We should pray that we'd be bold or fearless. We should pray that our words would be clear. And thirdly, we should be dependent upon God to supply the words that we need to say. And then that God would basically use our words to accomplish his purposes. And in that way, we just pray that God would be our provider and we just simply let God do his thing. We become a vessel, we become an instrument, and God does all the work. So they preach this, a whole bunch of people get saved, and then verse 2 comes. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Man, every time you open your mouth, boom, something bad happens. So here it is, a poisoning of the mind. You know, I think a lot of times we as Christians are well aware of the fact that there is opposition to the gospel, but we a lot of times interpret that persecution or at least understand it in terms of physical opposition. And sometimes we neglect the reality that minds... Thinking, facts, knowledge, reasonableness, that can be poisoned. All right. Okay. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, he writes this. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, what is our divine power? What is the power that we possess that can destroy strongholds? Is it voting blocks? No. He says in verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion which is raised against the knowledge of God. 
and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, there is opposition to the gospel, and a lot of times it's a mental opposition where people are purporting their opinions and they are challenging the knowledge of Christ. But we as Christians take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Or in other words, we evaluate the arguments, we evaluate what people are saying uh, when it comes to the minds and, and the realm of ideas. And we analyze it, we critique it within the scope and within, uh, with, with, within the thoughts of Christ. We have, to, we have to apply Christ to these things. And in so doing... We destroy the arguments. We destroy the strongholds that are holding people captive. You see, the mind is not something that we can just ignore as Christians. We can't ignore this. For some reason, we have this thought in the churches that to use your mind is, is equal to pride. And I don't, I don't get that. If, if you know things, if you read your Bible and you know things, if you study theology you are arrogant and proud. Well, perhaps, but the way it looks here, according to Paul, is you also may be fully equipped to defend the claims of Christianity. And that's a good thing. No wonder why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, you probably know this, that we shouldn't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we, we should be transformed, how? By the renewal of the mind. It's an interesting thought. So the minds of these people have been poisoned. So what, what would you do if the people you're talking to are constantly against you and they're bringing up statistics and studies and, and philosophy and all that? What would you do? Would you run away and just kind of like shelter away? I'm just going to believe harder. Here's what Paul and Barnabas did. In light of that, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. So in the midst of this mental opposition, what is their solution? What do they decide to do? Hey, we're going to hunker down. We're going to rent a place. We're staying here for the long haul. We're going to build relationships with people. We're going to engage with them. We're going to meet them in the marketplace and in the workplace. And we are going to preach and we're going to display the gospel. And we're going to speak it boldly. That's what they decided to do, which, to be honest, many of us, that's probably not what crosses our mind when we, when we come, come against opposition and resistance to the gospel. We just, I'm out. I don't want to deal with it because we want fast and easy. You see how this is not fast and easy? This is hard and long. This means that if we're to be effective witnesses for the gospel, we must con just be convicted in our own minds and hearts that we are going to commit to the long haul of building relationships with people. It won't be quick. It won't be easy. It'll be a long time. And then check out the grammar of this verse. This is just mind-blowing to me. It says, so they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Two questions, who is bearing the witness and whose word of grace is it? And when you look at the grammar, it points back to the Lord. It is the Lord who bears witness of the Lord's grace. It is God who does the work. And I think this is so encouraging to me because it reminds me that when I want to open my mouth to share the gospel with somebody, 
the effectiveness of my words is not dependent upon how winsome I am or how cute I am or how convincing I am or how convicted I am or anything like that. The effectiveness of my sharing the gospel is ultimately owing to what God decides to do with it. God is going to bear the witness of the word of his grace. God is going to supply the words of his grace. And God is going to make the decision on how your words are going to affect the people around you. I don't know about you, but that's like a huge burden lifted off my shoulders. You mean I don't have to act and dance and say these special things? And if you say this, I'm going to say this. And then if you say that, boom, I'm going to say this. Gotcha. (laughs) It's not like that. Sometimes the most effective witnessing is when you simply have a neighbor who's going through a hardship and they're crying. And you sit there and you cry with them. That's sometimes all you need. But that won't sell evangelism books. So Paul, Paul's trying to remind us, or Luke is trying to remind us that you know what? Man, God is doing the work. But then you see verse 4. Whenever the gospel is being effective, there's always opposition. Verse 4 introduced it with a but. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. It gets to the point where you just can't stay anymore. Opposition to the gospel. Sometimes you just got to move on. And this is what happened with Paul and Barnabas. When somebody is threatening to bash your brains in, it's really difficult for you after having your brains bashed in to keep doing gospel ministry. And so they decide, you know what, God's got a call on our life and I'm not supposed to die yet, so we're going to move on to the next city. That's reasonable to me at least. I'm okay. I don't fault them for that. But if you notice what they do in in verse 6, they head to Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country. They just, they just go. And you see verse 7, what they do, they continue to preach the gospel. So even though they got booted out of Antioch, even now they got booted out of Iconium, the very reason why they got expelled from these places is because they were preaching the gospel. Well, the next thing that's only reasonable for them to do is go to the next town and continue to preach the gospel. For many of us, that's not what we would do anymore. We're like, forget that. I'm going to a gated community and I'm just going into my house and I'm just leaving. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. These people are savages. I don't want, no, I'm done. Not for Paul. He's got to get this message out. And then this happens. He goes to Lystra. And there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Just imagine somebody who's paralyzed just sitting there. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked before. You can just imagine his feet are turned in, his ankles are kind of just swollen, his knees are are just atrophied. There's no muscle on his legs at all because he's never used his legs before. Do you have that mental picture in your head? So Paul was speaking, and in verse 9, he was listening to Paul. And Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, and I have no idea what that kind of faith looks like. But Paul knew. And Paul says with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. 
Can you imagine that if you're a person of Lystra and you've seen this guy his whole life? He can't use his feet, can't use his legs. Look how skinny his legs are. Paul, you're telling him to stand up. What kind of jerk are you, man? Pay attention. But instead, look what happens. The man springs up and begins walking. Are you kidding me? And if you're somebody who's ever read the book of Acts from from beginning to end, you you might scratch your head and, and think to yourself, wait a minute. I think I've heard this story before. In fact, Acts chapter 3 records a very similar story to this. It comes from Peter, though. So Acts chapter 3. And what I've done is I've, I've paralleled Acts chapter 3 and the, the specific events in Acts 3 and how they parallel Acts 14. And you'll see the, the, the similarities. Here's Peter, uh, this episode in Acts 3. A man lame from birth was being carried, verse 2 whom they lay daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Verse 6. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with, with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Okay. Why in the world would Luke record two very similar miracle accounts? Why would he do that? Well, think about the context and think about the the apostle who is performing it. One is Peter in Jerusalem. The other one is Paul out with the Gentiles. Luke is trying to get our attention. Look, you have to understand the same power of the gospel message. Peter had it. Paul has it. It's the gospel message for all people, whether Jew or Gentile. And so Luke is trying to reinforce in our minds that what God is doing is not particular to any people group. God is doing this in all the world. And look at the response of the people. (laughs) And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Wow. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Okay, if we flash back to Acts chapter 3, do you remember what happened to Peter and John after they performed their miracle? They got arrested, put in prison, and then beaten. Okay, so what's happening with Paul and Barnabas? People call them gods. Do you see the difference? And not only are Paul and Barnabas called gods, but then the priest of Zeus is thinking, I know just the thing. He runs back over to the temple, grabs a whole bushel of garland, which is like a headdress thing, which is what people wore as they walked down the street marching in, in joyful procession. He grabs a whole bunch of them in a rope. He has an oxen at the end, and he's yanking his oxen down the street, hands full of garland. He's waiting to offer a sacrifice to Paul and to Barnabas. That's worship. And I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but not only is physical persecution a form of opposition to the gospel, but also worship of the messengers is opposition to the gospel because it's idolatry. 
The Roman author Ovid, he wrote a story uh, called Metamorphosis about a half century before this episode. It takes place in the exact region where this, uh, this miracle happened. And it's a story of the two gods, Jupiter and Mercury. By their Greek names, you know them as Zeus and Hermes. They come to this region and they're seeking hospitality. They get rejected by a thousand homes until they go to this elderly home where this couple is there and they welcome these two gods in. And as a reward, the gods ask these, uh, this elderly couple, what would you like us to do for you? And they say, we want to die together in bed holding hands like a Nicholas Sparks novel. And so there they are. And, 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 and the result is as the thousand homes that rejected them, all those homes got destroyed. And so the people who have, that, that story is super popular at this time. They see Paul and Barnabas and they see what happened in front of them. They're like, oh, Ovid's story is true. I don't want my house demolished. We better worship these folks. And so they bring worship. And they begin to esteem and to value not the message of the gospel, but the messengers of the gospel. And in our culture, that should frighten us because our culture in America is one of the most, we worship celebrities like it's nobody's business. And that, that happens in the church too. We have our favorite preachers, we have our favorite Bible teachers, we have our favorite authors, we have our favorite podcast hosts. And there's times that go by when you envision, oh man, like the fall, my wife and I's favorite season. It's the fall. All I want to do is just sit by a fire. It was raining outside. I want to read a book with a hot beverage. That's what I want to do while watching college football. I had to throw that in there. Let's keep it real. But I've, I've had the thought also of, of I've encountered people who are Christians and, and I've heard them say things like this. Man, I can't go a day without reading this devotional book by so-and-so. Man, I, every time I listen to this preacher, man, I just feel something. And if we're not careful, pretty soon we become dependent on the preacher and we become dependent on the books and we put God to the side and we esteem the messengers at the cost of the message. Because the message is all about how we are bankrupt. You don't have the power. You remember when I talked about how it's poisoning of the mind? If you went on Amazon and looked at like Christian books on the mind, you know what you're going to find? A whole bunch of books on positive self-talk. Where you're going to sit there and they're going to tell you, you have what it takes, you have it within, you're beautiful enough, you're powerful enough, you have what it takes. Say it with me now, you have what it takes. Say it again. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, that's not the gospel. If that, is, if that is true that you have what it takes, then what's the point of Jesus? Let's get him out of the way. He's inconvenient. Do you guys understand? Do we see that? So, so that's poisoning of the mind. And that's esteeming the messengers above the message. The gospel story is we're all broken. But Jesus has come 
And through his death on the cross and the, and the uh, blood that was shed there, and because of his victorious resurrection, he's making all things new again. You don't have to stay broke. You can be healed. And you aren't healing yourself. You're looking outward of yourself, and you're looking to someone else to bring the healing. And his name is Jesus. And so we can't ever esteem the messengers above the message. We have to be careful about that. Celebrity worship is a real thing. And when we end up like these folks and we begin to worship celebrities, even Christian celebrities, we are in danger of missing the most beautiful news ever told. And the reality is no pastor can ever save you. I can't save you. Larry Adams can't save you. Golden Hills can't save you. Matter of fact, no church can save you. Jesus saves you. And since Jesus is the one who saves you, then that means God alone deserves praise. That means God alone is our hope. And that means God alone deserves all of our affections. And that means God alone is enough. And if God is enough, do we trust that? Can you leave here today saying, yes, I trust he's enough. I trust it. Well, these folks didn't. They were having a hard time differentiating between the message and the messenger. So Paul and Barnabas, verse 14, they heard of what was about to transpire. They tear their garments. They rushed out into the crowd. They began crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we are bringing you good news. What do you think? You can't worship me. I'm a man. <laughs> We're bringing you good news, not of me, of him. I'm not bringing you good news about how awesome you are or how awesome our message is and the words we use. And we're bringing you good news of how awesome God is. You can't do this. And their message is that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. You see, there's always two things at odds. As Genesis 3.15 tells us, there's the people of God, then there's the people who are not God's. There is the offspring of the woman. There is the offspring of Satan. Or there is the living God. And then there are all other gods which are not living, nor are they powerful. They promise you life and they promise you all kinds of things, but they cannot come through. And so in Paul's mind, he said, look, this is a binary decision. You have two choices, turn to God or perish. We can't worship money. We can't worship power. We can't worship education. We can't worship sex. We can't worship the achievements of our kids. We can't worship our accolades. We can't worship our home. We can't worship our cars, our reputation. All of these things are false idols. John Calvin once wrote, there is within every human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. Everyone knows there's a God, which tells me that every human being is prone to worship something. Nobody has a vacuum in which they worship nothing. Everyone worships something. Something is always the most supreme and the highest in your own affections. Something is. And all of these things are vain meaning they can't give you life. 
And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. And what is that truth? That what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So the things that have been made, uh, in the things that have been made, so we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul is addressing idol worship where we... Instead of worshiping the God from whom all things flow, instead we worship the gifts and we ignore God. So idolatry is not when you bend your knee in front of a statue. Idolatry is a condition of your heart in which you have placed your greatest affections on an object of your greatest admiration. Whatever you find is your greatest joy, that is your God. And look how Paul really pushes back against this. He says, God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You need to turn to God. He's the creator. Or in other words, why in the world would you worship the sun when the sun was made by someone greater than the sun? Why would you worship rain when the rain is something that comes from a God who is greater than the rain? Why would you worship money when money is given to you by a God who is greater than money? Do you, do you see what Paul is trying to get at? We worship the stuff that God gives us and we ignore God as the giver. Can't do that. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God bore witness to his existence. Romans 1 tells us so, and Paul preaches it right here. The good things we enjoy, like college football and hot drinks and good books, I'm telling you, those things are gifts from God, but they are not to be worshipped. God is. And so we have to thank God for what he has supplied us. And every human being is prone to worship something. The question is, what is it? What is it that has captured our affections? What is it that that we are just imagination-wise and just what we think about when we're driving in our commute, when we're by ourselves at night watching a show and our mind just, just wanders off. What is that object of admiration? Whatever that answer is, that's God to you. And from it, you will suck life and find that it doesn't have much to give. So that's Paul's Guys, come wake up. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. You imagine them, they're like, oh, good message. Yeah, I'm going to keep going though. And in the midst of all of this, Paul is like preaching his heart out. And look what happens. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. You remember the two cities where Paul got booted out? especially Iconium where they threatened to bash his brains in. They came and having persuaded the crowds, they end up doing with Paul what they always wanted to do. They stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. You imagine that? They're bashing his head in, trying to kill him. 
There he is. They drag his lifeless body out of the city. Done with you. Told you not to mess with us. Into the city they go. The disciples see the blood that is marked by his body being dragged through the city. And they just follow it. And they find his lifeless body outside the city. And they gather around him. I imagine they're like, man, I can't believe this. I don't know if Paul was playing possum or what. But he just, (laughs) he rises up. Can you imagine that? And then what's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Probably is is, what I would suspect is like, hey, guys, we got to get out of here. This is, I'm not having any fun. (laughs) Instead of what he says is, hey, we're going back to the city. You know, the same city where they just tried to kill me. We're going back there. You imagine the conversation that night over dinner? (laughs) Oh, man, your blood is dripping on the table. Can you, like, lean back or something? Like, come on. (laughs) The next day, it says this, they rose up. He left with Barnabas and went to Derby. In my mind, I'm thinking, what in the world is he going to do in Derby? Probably the thing I wouldn't do. I've just been kicked out of Antioch. I just got kicked out of Iconium. I just got kicked out of Lystra. I'm probably not going to Derby, and I'm going to go preach the gospel because probably I'm going to die there as well. You, you, you see the pattern here. So they go there, and verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had, many, many, and had made many disciples, I just stopped there and I think, maybe Paul's like a, he, he's not a good learner. If you preach the gospel, something bad's going to happen to you over and over and over and over. At some point you may say enough is enough, but not for Paul. It's not enough. People have to hear this message Come what may. You can try to take me out, but guess what? God's going to raise somebody else up anyways. So do what you will. The gospel is going to spread. If I'm being honest with you, I probably would have tapped out right after Antioch. Like, hmm, that's rough. But then he went on to Iconium. Ooh, they're threatening to kill you? You might want to think about that again. Then they do bash your head in with some rocks. You might want to think about like maybe a career change. (laughs) But on and on and on he goes preaching the gospel. At what point would you quit? And let's keep it real for a second. Many of you would have quit. I know I would have. Lystra, I would have been tempted to stay because they were worshiping you. Once again, let's keep it real. You might have stayed too. (laughs) But then look what happens in verse 21. They preached the gospel to that city. They made many disciples, and so they returned home. But let's watch the, the, the path in which they took to get home. They go to three cities. Lystra. Huh, that's, oh, that's interesting. Iconium. Oh, hey. And Antioch. They go right back to where they came from, where they experienced the persecution in the first place. I don't know about you, but that's bold. And look what they do while they go there. Verse 22, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And just imagine this is like a pep talk. Paul comes into town, he's bruising, limping, dragging his foot. Hey, guys. And everyone's like, ooh, what happened to you? I got stoned. 
And he goes, if we need to talk, I want you guys to be courageous. I want you guys to be bold. I want you to be clear in the way in which you speak. I want you to be dependent upon God to give you the words and just trust God that he's going to do what he wants to do. Okay, guys? Yeah. But then you look at the rest of verse 22 and how he goes about encouraging them and strengthening them is by saying that through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. Oh, wait, what? Wait a minute. So he gets all everyone uh, together in a circle and goes, hey, hey, guess what? I just want to let you know the kingdom of God is coming. It's comprised of all people. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group will be in a new creation, enjoying God's presence forever. Everyone's like, yeah. The only way to get there is through suffering. Your life is going to be difficult, miserable. People are going to hate you and try to take you out. Who's ready? That's, honestly, that's, I had a hard time sleeping last night because I knew how to preach this. And I realized if you want to grow a church, tell everyone that it'll be easy to be a Christian. Tell everyone that God wants you to be happy and comfortable. It's just unfortunate that that's not biblical. So I can't say it. Instead, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. And through that saying, somehow we are strengthened and encouraged. <laughs> How? Well, you know what? Paul actually wrote about this exact event in the last letter he wrote, which is 2 Timothy. And it reads like this, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy, the one who's going to take over for him. Paul writes, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You follow my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at, look at these three cities, Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. I came through. You know how I came through? Yet from, all of, uh, from them all the Lord has rescued me. The Lord is always faithful. You remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Hey, we won't worship you, Nebuchadnezzar. You can kill us if you like. They went into a fire and began having a, a hoedown. And you remember the fourth person that was in the fire with them? God himself. I'll be with you. He goes on, Paul goes on and writes this, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While, all, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Christian, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures or writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how does Paul encourage us in the midst of hostility? He reminds us to go back to the word of God and to see and read the promises of God. He's faithful. He will come through. And when we think about that, you start to realize I can be an effective witness in the world. I pray for boldness, I pray for clarity, I pray that God will provide the words and I trust that God will use my words in any way he sees fit. And I recognize that even if it's hard, God will be with me. He promised he will be with me. 
And you know what? He didn't promise that it would be easy. He just promised that he'd be with you. That's a big difference. To be an effective witness, we have to be committed to relationships for the long haul, where we share the gospel with our words and with our lives, where we pray for boldness, for clarity and dependency upon God to supply us with all that we need. We need to be people who trust the word of God, the Bible, to be sufficient to supply us with all that we need to be effective in this world. That's what we need to do. John 17, if you remember this, Jesus is praying for his disciples, for you and I. And we know this because there's bumper stickers, not of this world. You've probably seen them around. But I want you to listen to these four verses. Jesus says, I do not ask that you, Father, would take them, Christians, out of the world. But I pray that you keep them from the evil one. Do you hear that? Jesus doesn't want us out of the world yet. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. That's an identity verse. Though you are in it, you're not of it. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, which means to purify, to make holy the word of God. And usually we stop there. But verse 18, and as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. If you're a Christian here today, you have to understand that God is going to keep you from the evil one. That you are indeed not of this world. That you must cling to the word of God which will sanctify you and equip you. But you must also recognize the last verse which is you are called to be sent into the world. So brothers and sisters, we have every incentive to enter the world with confidence because God is with us. His promises are true. So let's enter the fray and let's bring a healing message of the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. And let's pray that God will do that starting with this church in this community at this time and place. So Father, help us. Because indeed, if we're to ever proclaim the gospel with our words and proclaim the gospel with our lives, there will be opposition. But all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet in the face of these stark realities, we can be strengthened and encouraged by the fact that you are with us. That you will never leave us nor forsake us that though our body may perish, yet we shall live. We're getting new bodies anyway. So God, would you help us as a church to be emboldened by the gospel because it is indeed the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So God, help us to become ambassadors, help us to become witnesses, help us to take that call of being sent into the world, into the fray, seriously. God, thank you for who you are. 
because indeed you have a message to be sung to the nations, to be told that you are great, that you are good, and that you're making all things new again. So thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.